0: Welcome back for a special bonus episode. You're listening to Anti-Racism and the Disciplines, the podcast that explores the complex histories of the liberal arts in order to reimagine their future. I'm your host, Brian Edwards, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. On March 31st, 2023, we celebrated nearly three years of work on the Anti-Racism and the Disciplines initiative with a final symposium that brought together the scholars who had taught us so much throughout the series. On that day, Hortense Spillers delivered a truly remarkable keynote address. In this episode, we present that lecture. In her talk, Dr. Spillers weaves together personal narrative with intellectual history to tell the story of how Black Studies came to be. Emerging in the 1960s, Black Studies is not only a culmination of anti-racist efforts but also what she calls the practice of anti-racism, at least in theory. It was, as she puts it, a street movement transformed into a curricular object. We hope this talk is as compelling to you as it was to those of us who were present in the audience that day. That's
1: wonderful, Brian. Thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. And thank you for this invitation to New Orleans, one of my favorite cities and this beautiful university and one of my favorite cities. What's not to like, right? I'm delighted uh, to be here and to see all of you on this beautiful day where you could have been so many other places. So I will promise not to keep you very long and that the time I do keep you, you will not be bored by uh, what I hope will be a note, if not the keynote. right? I'm going to sound a note. The topic that we are taking up today, perhaps it would be better to say, the topic that consumes us, would be more accurate, is unfolding in a context of radical signatures along several lines of stress. One of them... A planet that has turned on its inhabitants, as its inhabitants have betrayed their duty to act as its custodians. For the first time in my life, and I've lived about a century, reference to the planetary is no longer an abstraction that defines the work of nuclear physicists and astronomers and their abstruse Paradigms, but inscribes rather the ground of our being in ways that we've not been compelled to think about before. For example, 175-mile-an-hour winds just killed 20 people and wrecked an untold amount of built space five hours by car. From my house, is one percent of tornado emergency status becoming powerful of the chorus? For another thing, democracies across the globe have either caved in to authoritarian ambition or currently live under the threat of such seductions. While here in the United States we observe the gathering of what we could rightly call a fifth column, a full-fledged revanchist movement fueled by violence and the lust for blood as it is predicated on a tissue of lies and the low spectacle of clowning and governance that characterizes the current version of the United States House of Representatives in its majority representation. They're banning books in our country. And anybody who thinks that the war on thought, on criticism is not going to impact the entire society and not just the citizens and taxpayers of Florida needs to think again. The truth is that we have not seen in a while now, a circumstance that cannot be described as a state of exception. It seems that the sole relevant question is the one I think Lenin asked, what is to be done? But in confronting what to do, we might carry out another kind of related inquiry, and that is to say, How did we arrive at this critical juncture? Much of what we struggle for in our troubled democracy originates in the discomforts of history and their implications for our respective disciplines. In other words, we have not been able to cordon off our disciplinary path or pathways from either the mandates of history and the discourses that it has ordained or the historiographies that lend shape to our imagination and desire. My own disciplinary path, probably akin, figuratively speaking, to hitting a straight lip with the crooked stick, begins somewhere altogether different from the standard operating procedures of literary studies, or more broadly speaking, what we refer to today as criticism and theory, although the historical soil in which my inaugural narratives commence is embedded in racial sentence. The color-coded social arrangements fomented by violence that prevailed in the United States from the end of the Civil War to the Civil Rights era a century later. I measure my coming of age in what I would consider the official end of the United States apartheid. If the forces of backwardness in the country, the forces that want to burn and banish books that would make thinking unpopular, if not unpatriotic, would have their way. None of the terror and betrayal ever happened, but there is such a thing as history. And while history does not write itself and is even open to acts of interpretation, I believe that the truth of it cannot be perverted or concealed forever. The pressure that the historical exerts brings us to the current juncture. In order to reach an understanding of the relationship between anti-racism and the disciplines, and I'm not sure I know exactly how to do that, and I think the first panel Gave me permission to see that because somebody there raised the possibility that we didn't know what anti racism was. So I thought, ah, okay, I can, I can put that in, I can put that in the talk. So, in order to reach an understanding of this relationship, which we will talk more about in yet another question and answer, what I would like to do is just talk just a moment about my own autobiographical path and my disciplinary path and their convergence at the doors of the church that, that Brian evoked uh, in his um, lovely introduction. I wrote a dissertation 900 years ago on the rhetoric of black sermons. And there's a story about that book, uh, how it was turned down by Oh, it's it's in the archives. Uh, I think about by 12 publishers, including black publishers, including Howard University Press. And so many years later, the book is coming out and one of the readers wanted me to rewrite it. And I said, oh, no, 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 we're not rewriting that. You're going to read that like I wrote it that I might write a different introduction. I think that's certainly in order, but not not rewriting it. So there we are, right? The Black Protestant Church of the South, Memphis, Tennessee, to be exact, and its rhetorical resources. The church would appear to be a long distance from disciplinary formation or racist response in any direction, but this church by virtue of the word is steeped in factors that provided me with a perspective on both. For one thing, the centrality of the sermon and of prayer. Speaking of prayer, this is just a little divergent. Did you all hear Chaplain Barry Black's prayer in the United States Senate a couple days ago? after the shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. And what this chaplain said from the floor of the United States Senate is that thoughts and prayers are no longer enough. And if a chaplain can say that, right? Maybe some other people can say that too, like some of the politicians of the state of Tennessee, right? Anyway, sermons and prayers, prayers and sermons. And what I have argued elsewhere is that this particular rhetorical tradition in its powerfulness that I didn't really understand as an eight-year-old, I mean, I was simply bored in the pews listening to those sermons. I would say that those rhetorical resources make the Black church the sermon of the ear rather than the sermon of the eye. And the glory of cathedrals, it really is about something else. And so this imparted to me at a very young age a profound sensitivity to the power of the word, to speech on the human tongue. What I understood years after girlhood, growing up on the front row pews of St. John Missionary Baptist Church in Orange Mound, was that those strategies of narrative and delivery were not the peculiar property of the ministers that I listened to, but that this grain of the voice, this poetry of re-envisioned scripture, were actually the conditions of address that characterized the United States civil rights movement of the middle of the 20th century. I mean, when I heard King's speeches, I then understood those sermons many years later, that it was the same rhetorical strategies, except the king was a man of the university. And the preachers that I was listening to were not, but they came out of the very same rhetorical tradition. So its nuances could be traced to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream or I've been to the mountaintop or any of his writings, especially the celebrated letter from Birmingham jail. We hear the power of its robust laughter in the unapologetic irony of Malcolm X's speeches, or even as late as Barack Obama and Michelle Obama at their most inspirational moments of public address. When I finally connected the dots between the kid sitting on the front row to the right of the aisle and the now grown woman in search of a dissertation topic, I had already traveled through four years of undergraduate training, whose traditional protocols of literary studies not only valorized the literature and culture of Britain, but pursued the latter as a status marker that excluded historical subjects along various lines of stress, race among them. In my undergraduate classes at the University of Memphis in the early 1960s, black people as English majors were a rarity and my sense that this exclusionary pattern was one of the most sustained expressions of racism, ran parallel for the longest time to my activity as a student of English and American literature. I think it would be fair to identify this crux of contradiction as not only a central feature of my own autobiography, but a primary goal to my practice and pursuit of scholarship. In other words, one of the reasons why I stayed there and did not become a broadcast journalist or a lawyer or run to be a junior senator from the state of Tennessee, good luck with that. And the reason why I didn't do any of that had to do with the looks I would get in courses on Beowulf Chaucer Shakespeare's history plays I used to enjoy being able to produce essays and they wouldn't necessarily know that that, you know the little black nappy headed gal over there sitting over there by herself was the person who wrote that right I got a Real kick out of that. Anyway, it provided black students with something to prove as the literary was considered the highest human measure, idols to knock down. At the same time, it was intellectual work in grammar and syntax, in eloquence and persuasion, in thinking and self-expression. In short... Literary study, precisely because it was other and alien and simultaneously familiar and seductive, it became the primary vehicle of an entire generation of African-American intellectuals to cross the borders, to cut the borders of the segregation of letters. Born within shouting distance of Auschwitz and the initial use of atomic weapons and a war so terrible in its implications that even still today it is referred to in shorthand as the war. With this spectacle of human dread on one side and the future that bursts wide open in the fall of apartheid and the opening of the United States Academy to a plethora of others, consider 1968. In that regard, my generation was both interstitial and an arrival. It was birthed precisely between human failure and human possibility. It is this fabric of contradiction then that links church and scholarship, autobiographical trace and disciplinary choosing in a tweed of motivation that marks the traditional English department, let's call it, the most astonishingly unlikely candidate for the kind of historical act and agency it would become between 1968 and the turn of the century. How did this happen? Well, from this vantage, it looks quite remarkable. Several movements cohere that give the impression of complementarity, but they were in fact discreet and separate, if not outright hostile to each other, at least we could say They were invisible to one another with no apparent ground of mutuality. Youth movement across the Western world seemed to break out suddenly, but in the United States, for example, the 1960s ushered in radical activity as early as 1960 on the dot when black students launched acts of civil disobedience among other places at lunch counters and at other sites of public activity that together with voter registration campaigns lend the early to mid 1960s the aura of urgency that would not subside for about a decade and a half. The Vietnam protests, the Stonewall uprising, the early activities, that come to define second wave feminism all accumulate across a broad front of youth movement that works its way through the sinews of society like the extirpation of tree roots. But as remarkable to my mind are the epistemological shifts and rifts that seem to accompany these movements, but may rather be an accident of simultaneity. I've always been fascinated by, for instance, the structuralist movement and its appearance on the intellectual landscape of the United States with the 1966 publication of, and there may not be many people here old enough to remember this, right? The Structuralist Controversy, the Languages of Criticism and the Sciences of Man, edited by Richard Maxey and Eugenio Donato and published by Johns Hopkins University Press. The symposium of which this text offers an account was hosted by Johns Hopkins University and would feature contributions from many of the public intellectuals who would come to dominate the next decades of the 20th century from René Girard to Roland Barthes and Jacques Lacan and Jacques Derrida. It's almost as if we've heard those names all our lives, but they had a time in history and I kind of remember that. And the Johns Hopkins seminar led to the creation of the School of Criticism and Theory, whose first class I was in, in 1976 that met at the University of California, Irvine, for many years that the School of Criticism and Theory grew out of the Johns Hopkins Initiative. In any case, the interruptions and disruptions and displacements that these continental commotions brought about cannot be overstated, I believe, just as it would seem that the emergence of new paradigms of new or uncustomary curricular objects is the intellectual version of what is unfolding on the pulse of the nerve in the street. In any case, both threads of a kind of systematicity will marry up, let's say, in the English department or the literary textual fields, more broadly speaking. But the single most generative union of these disparately sourced lines of movement occurs in black studies, which may well represent the culmination of anti-racist response in its disciplinary guise. Black studies insofar as it embodies a cluster of human sciences could well represent the idea of several disciplines in the outline I'm speaking from. Anti-racist response is inherent to its raison d'etre. It is, ironically, the practice of anti-racism, at least in theory. The moment, I will call it, the moment of Black studies is that moment at which street movement, is transformed into a curricular object. And I have never stopped being fascinated by that particular moment. And we usually talk about one or the other and sort of as though they're separate. But it seems to me that they belong to the same moment that would invite um, an analysis that I have not completed, but I've thought about it quite a lot. An example of it would be Brandeis University itself and the creation of the African-American Studies program at Brandeis the winter of 1969. That department grew out of a building takeover on the campus of Brandeis University, which was actually a very violent event or it could have been except for the faculty of Brandeis University. Black undergraduate students who in large numbers were admitted to uh, Brandeis that year took over Ford Hall and Ford Hall was the computer center at the university. So the black students seized the communications center of that university. I was in my first year in graduate school and a handful of graduate students joined the movement. So that that spring, when people were registering for second semester classes, my professors were wondering where I was. And so they finally figured out, well, she hadn't been kidnapped, she's in a building, right? We took Ford Hall for 11 days. And one of the demands of that building takeover was the creation of a black studies program and that's what I mean when I talk about what is a movement this morning that becomes by afternoon a curricular object right so it seems to me that in that historical play there is a kind of memory at stake in the creation of black studies. In other words, it cannot forget itself and it will never be simply traditional or just another installation. I mean, it can't simply be that because it has this uh, astigmatic, we might say, this kind of whiplash formation and it was just that quickly. So what happens here is a kind of synergistic relationship that comes to prevail between polar oppositions, the epistemological and the political, or what happens out in the world. This difference is never resolved, nor should we want it to be. And in that regard, I would think of it analogously to Du Boisian double consciousness, which I in turn have concluded offers a version of ambivalence. And in this case, ambivalence may be regarded as a resource. In any case, the tension that we feel between epistemological urgency and political necessity need not be lost. It seems to me that we can use it. The tension is the nervous energy that is relayed between our scholarship and its material, historical, and political context. It is, in short, the dance between tradition and innovation, between comfortable installation and the exilic sense or exilic consciousness. Aspirationally speaking, the disciplines post-black studies are always in the moment of its impure arrival. In other words, coming from this world and trying to transcend
0: it. Thank you. If you liked this podcast, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, teachers, or students, or share it on social media. And let us know how you are contributing to anti-racist scholarship and teaching at our website, liberalarts.tulane.edu slash anti-racism and the disciplines podcast. I'm your host, Brian Edwards. This bonus episode was produced by Gabriela Garcia-Mays and Billy Soss. Original music by Corey Diane.